You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Oh, Jeff, we did it again. Uh-huh. Uh, I got, <laughs> yep, I got some more corrections to make. Uh, somebody was nice enough to let us know. The theme to the Wonder Years was not Obla D, Obla Da. Uh, the theme to the Wonder Years was by Joe Cocker. Uh, get by with a little help from my friends. Oh. I bet you're wondering right now, what TV show did use Obla D, Obla Da as their theme song? You may think that, Bill. But you'd be wrong. No, uh, by all means, please tell me which show used Obla D, Obla Da as a theme song. Ironically enough, the name of the show was Life Goes On. Oh, I remember that show. I never watched it. (laughs) Just like like the other one. I couldn't have corrected you when we recorded it because I've never seen it before. All right. On with the show. On with the show. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, checking in from just east of the equator, it's Mr. Jeff McLarge. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Bill. Hi. <laughs> What's up? How you doing? I am very good. I know uh, you and I are both, I don't know if you describe us as music nerds, because... I do. Yeah, I'm not sure that I fall. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess. And I, I, I know that um, your favorite band in the whole wide world, Marillion, recently released a new album. Yes, uh, well, it was a few months uh, back. Clearly. Yeah, in the uh, in the late winter. Yes, and right, and the, it's, it's called an hour before the, it's dark. An hour before it's dark. Yeah, it has a great cover with a color wheel of stripes. It's really pretty. Yeah, as you and I were talking about this record when it came out. I know uh, you said, ah, oh, you know, I, I got to listen to it a few times to see if it really settles with me. And I, and I thought about my relationship with, with Marillion and some other bands, too, mm-hmm. in that there can definitely be a settle-in period before music will really sit with you. Yes. And I, I think back to Marillion. It took years for me to, like, really get into this strange engine, which is one of my favorite records now. And even... Uh, Fish from Marillion solo stuff took me a lot. I'd, I'd buy a record, listen to it twice, and be like, "All right, two years later, then I then I'd <laughs> like it again." You know, I'd like yeah. it and want to listen to it a lot. Now that you've been sitting with this record for a little while, you know, where are you at with it? I love it, and this isn't you know this opening segment isn't going to be like a big alienation thing for everybody because nobody knows who Marillion are except for <laughs> me and you. But um, Marillion's this, like, prog rock band from England. They've been around since, like, 1981, 1982. I've been a fan since 1986 or Mm 7. And I own every single one of their albums several times over on a lot of them. And consistently, every album I've ever bought from them, I have put it on and go, yep, don't like that. (laughs) But then after subsequent listens, I figure out little parts here and there that I, I like and then it just like comes together as a whole mm-hmm. and they're definitely in an album band yeah you know where the the album as a whole is better than the individual tracks yes Pink Floyd's another band like that agreed and I would say that you know the, the a band that I've carried around is my favorite for at least 20 years now uh, Radiohead has, has evolved into that kind of band yes um, and I have the same sort of relationship with them that you have with the Marillion in the last year or so it, Radiohead hasn't released new music in a while because you know, it's a long story but they did re-release a couple of older records uh, bound together and then with a, a record full of like outtakes and other songs sort of shoehorned into the middle that my kids gave me for the holidays and the second record of that Amnesiac is one that I didn't like when it came out I waited in line to buy it I was really excited to get it I listened to it and was like, this record isn't very good and didn't listen to it for years and years until something triggered me going back to it to listen to something specific. Mm -hmm. And I started to see all the beauty in that album. And 
over the course of years, that's become probably my second favorite of all of their records. And I think that speaks to the staying power of complicated music. Marillion's music is complicated. Yeah, that, that's the thing. That's, that's what I was about yeah. to say. I mean, you're not going to, like, digest that whole thing all at once. You know, right. I absolutely love three-chord songs. I love the Ramones. I've, yeah. I've established that. There is a great place for the Ramones. And there's a, also a great place for, like you just said, very complicated music. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean technically complicated music, like, you know, like Dream Theater. That's like going <laughs> to math class. Um <laughs> Yes. But I mean, just <laughs> layers, you know, there's layers to the songs, there's layers mm-hmm. to the production. It's not just like, you know, two guitar chords and, uh, you know, bass and drums and maybe some tambourines right. in the background. You know, there's many, many, many layers on the tracks and the vocals and all that stuff. Like we said, it's it's complicated music, but not overly complex. Am I saying right. it right? You think I'm saying that yes. right? right? You are. Yes. Okay. It's complicated, but not overly complex, I think is a perfect way to describe it. In that the production and the orchestration all plays a big, big part in how it's presented, and it makes it more difficult to perform live to capture the same (laughs) resonance as you would typically see it. Bands can do it, but it takes a lot of technology and assistance and sometimes more musicians than are there for the recording session because of the instrumentation that's there. When I saw Marillion in Canada... They do have some backing tracks that they play along with, you know, just because this it's the music is so lush. Right. They did this one song and it's very rare that you see a band stop and start over again, but mm-hmm. they screwed up so bad. Like everybody in the audience is like, Oh, here it is. Here it is. And yeah, they had right. to start and start the song all over again. Well, at least it wasn't like fourteen minutes into Ocean Cloud. And like, no, oh. no, 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 no. <laughs> All right, so before we get on with the show proper, I have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. All right, trivia question this time around is, Mm -hmm. who was the first child actor to get paid over $1 million for a role? And what movie was it for? The first child actor to get paid more than $1 million for a role, and what was it for? That's big money. And I am going to guess at the end of the show. And I'm going to be wrong. Y'all going to get wrong. (laughs) I'm going to be wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning August the 1st. And is it? It's my turn to start this week. I think it is. No, can't be. Yep. My turn to start. So August the 1st, 1961. Six Flags Over Texas opens in Arlington, uh, uh, Texas. Yep, it was. It is the first of the Six Flags franchise. Oh, how many of them are there now? There's like the one in Agawa, Mass. That used to be. That used to be Riverside Park. A it used long to be Riverside time Park, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, obviously, that's the one I go to most often because it's mm-hmm. right down the street, about a hundred and fifty miles down the street. Hey, <laughs> it's a long street, but it's yeah. worth the trip. I've been to a few. I've been to the. I've never been to the one in Texas. I've been to the one in New Jersey, and I've been to the one California, which is actually used to be Magic Mountain, which is a very okay. fa- yeah, very famous amusement park. It's a Six Flags now, right. but yeah, right. Wow, any idea how many there are just in total? Uh, yeah, there's the 23 as of this writing. God, that's a ton. That's yep. a ton of those places. Wow. Well, I mean, it's not like they build them. They typically get the, you know, the mom and pop amusement parks and then just right. buy them and then expand on them. So, right. like we said, Riverside Park was an amusement park in Agawam, Mass. Uh, that, that's been Six Flags for, I don't know, I think about 20 years now, at least. I remember Riverside was the big park when we were a kid. That was like a day trip park or longer. Right. Like you could go in an afternoon and go to Rocky Point, which was the big park, or Lincoln Park, which was like the little park near where we lived. Sure. But Riverside was always like, that was almost Disney World to me when I was a little kid. (laughs) Yeah. I was like too young to enjoy any of the good rides. I was still in my like scared of rides uh, phases and all that. Uh, Funny bit was some years ago, there's this dude, Grim, that works with us at the Haunted Houses. And I didn't know him well, but somebody had said, oh, you have to talk to Grimm because Grimm's a big roller coaster fan like you are. I was like, oh, cool. Right. Without even really knowing this person, Grimm and I booked this like roller coaster tour. We went all the way down to Virginia, 
rode a bunch of roller coasters down there, and then on the way up, we stopped off at Six Flags, New Jersey, which I think has another name, but I don't know, someone in New Jersey. Now, they had just put up what they call the King Dakar. The King Dakar was the tallest and fastest roller coaster at the time. It still might be. I'm not sure. It's a right. very short coaster. It gets You get shot straight up, and then you come straight back down. But you end up going like 120 miles an hour. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. And wouldn't you know it, that was the day King Dakar was not running. <laughs> of course. Yep. So Grim was bullsh** about this, and he wanted to steal one of those signs with like Mister Six, you know, the old man from the that dances around in the commercials. Yes. Yeah. So he wanted to steal. Now this thing's like over six feet tall. He wanted to steal the sign and put it in my car. I was like, dude, that is not happening. Goes, I'm taking it. <laughs> and it was like a good 20 minute tug of war of whether I'm going to leave this guy in New Jersey holding on to this sign or whatever. He ended up giving up the ghost and coming, you know, back in the car with this common sense and no sign. Mm-hmm. But he was adamant about stealing that that uh, <laughs> that thing. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's. I mean, had you done that, that's. Eventually, they would have tracked you down and found that creepy old man dude and busted you for it, and you wouldn't be go- able to go to any of the Six Flag parks. Right. I mean, there's that old adage, what if we get caught? You know. <laughs> uh, August 2nd, 1973. George Lucas's first real feature film, American Graffiti, premieres at the Locarno International Film Festival in Switzerland. Did you ever see American Graffiti, Bill? I have not, but I used to watch Happy Days. If that makes any sense. It does, because Happy Days is a direct extension of American Graffiti. It's a story about kids uh, in the 1950s, high school kids on, like, right around the eve of graduation and having a summer night together, cruising up and down the boulevard in their hot rods and the relationships that they have with one another and other friends. Yeah, it's an ensemble cast, too, isn't it? It is indeed. It's a big cast, yeah. Yep. Lucas's contribution to to film, he has a million contributions to film. It's hard to overstate, but... One of the things that he did was he wrote the song titles that he wanted to use for every page and every scene change throughout the screenplay, which had never been done before. The, the score for the film was all popular music from the era that the film was made. That the film was portraying, not that the film was made. It was made in 1972. When you said he wrote every song, I, it sounded like he composed every song, but no. He wrote at the top of the script, you know, uh, Wake Up Little Susie, right. and then the scene would follow... Right. This the the theme of Wake Up Little Susie. I see what you mean. Right. Okay. And and it uses the the film itself uses something like 106 songs in it. Wow. All of those rock and roll songs are the soundtrack. So the whole soundtrack was made of popular music from the era that the film depicts, which had not been done until that point. Oh wow. Yeah, it's cool. It's a good film. It's really really interesting to watch, especially to see Harrison Ford who looks like he's like 13. Right, yeah, yeah. Harrison Ford's in that. A lot of the cast that ended up in Happy Days is in that. Ron Howard's in it, and so Cindy Williams. Yes. Yes. Who was uh, on Laverne and Shirley, but I mean, she started off with Happy Days. Yeah, well, that was a spinoff of Happy Days, so it, it all tracks, as they say. Uh, that's on my uh, on my to do list. I do I do want to see that movie. That's I mean, it's an American classic, haha. Even though it premiered in Switzerland. <laughs> So moving on to August the 3rd, August the 3rd, 1965, uh, your friend and mine, Rex Heflin, who is a highway inspector, takes four Polaroids of a flying object measuring 30 feet, or about nine and a quarter meters in diameter, near Santa Ana, California. He takes four Polaroids of a flying object measuring 30 feet. That's a big Polaroid, Bill. Yeah, you would think, yeah. According to Eflin, the photos were taken from him by two men identifying themselves as from the North American Air Defense. Oh. He was like, yeah, yeah I took uh, four pictures of these UFOs, but these two guys showed up and took them. I bet yeah. one of them held a little, like, silver pen up and went bleep, and then he forgot where he left his keys. But apparently he remembered that he took the pictures. Uh, yeah, apparently. Yeah, I'm right. looking at one of the Polaroid uh, that survived. Honestly, it, it could be anything. Oh, it yeah. could be a UFO. It could be smudge on the freaking lens. It <laughs> well, could be anything. You'd think, you know, even today, Bill, even today, I have like a 13 megapixel camera or something in, in my cell phone, which is with me all the time. Right. And I see f- 
stuff that comes across YouTube and other places all the time where people are like, it's a, it's a UFO, I've never seen anything like it. And all it is is like a white dot on a black background because <laughs> there's nothing for scale. You, I don't know if it's moving. It looks like somebody taking a picture of the planet Venus or a star or an airplane or something else, and it's generally not focused well. So, like, right. eh, you know, I have the same reaction to those as I do to the Polaroids that I look at of Mr. Heflin here. Yeah, that's like, uh, one of the diagrams that I saw on some of the pages that I go to was showing it – was, it was like a bar graph but with, like, a line. Okay. So – and it was showing, like, the amount of miracles that happened. Right. And, you know, and as the years progress and technology with video cameras goes up, the amount of miracles go down. Yeah. You know, because you can make video evidence. And in the same context – with the better technology of cameras, there's a lot less UFO sightings because you can tell when a photo's been doctored. Right. And pictures are much clearer. And you can tell when somebody like digital zooms it up 50 times and it's like four squares. <laughs> four square, four giant pixelated squares. Yeah. But let me tell you something. In that general vicinity of where that happened, I drove cross country some years ago and we were driving through. I don't want to say Death Valley, but around that little area of California, like before you get to Western California. So you're saying you know? it's like near Death Valley. So in the general vicinity thereof, yeah. No, but and it's like near death? Near, near Death Valley. Yes. Near death experience. On the verge of Death Valley, yes. <laughs> the twilight and of life. The little sleep valley. Yes. <laughs> the golden years of valley. So, um, <laughs> Heaven's waiting room valley. Yeah. The Florida of, of death, the Florida <laughs> Valley. So at, at any rate, the dude that was driving with us had to pee. So we're driving, we're driving, we're driving, and then we see what looks like a convenience store. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, oh, we'll just pull off and we'll go over there. So we, we get off the highway and we're driving towards this convenience store and we notice that this convenience store and it was like one of those real old looking ones there like texas chainsaw massacre kind of thing yeah yes and then they're like the whole thing is surrounded by chain link fence mm-hmm. and then as we're getting closer to it we see like men in flak jackets like walking out like what the f- are these guys doing and we're like oh this isn't what it looks like is it we're gonna turn around and get the hell out of here Toronto. Tano. <laughs> Yeah, that accidentally was accidentally secret... going to pee on Area 51. Yeah, that was a secret military base of some sort. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We'll just go pee on a rattlesnake up the road a little bit. I guess I'm not going to be getting any Doritos here. So. Yep. We were just leaving. Isn't that funny? All right. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that something? All right. Moving on to the fourth. Uh, August 4th, 1693. Winemaker named Don Perignon invents champagne. Using grapes from, see if you can guess, the Champagne region of France, for those of you. Who I know this because I watch Wayne's World. Uh-huh. I don't know if you're a fan of the uh, the bubbly, as it were, Bill, but uh, I have never been bit of the so, bubbly. I have never been so hungover and sick in my entire life as I have on the old Champagne. They put, I cannot... It puts the pain in Champagne. I cannot say with any certainty that I've ever had champagne. I mean, I remember when we were kids, my mom would quote unquote buy champagne on New Year's Eve and like give us some like, oh, wow, I'm 13. I'm living it up. I'm drinking champagne. But after I saw Wayne's World, I find out that that's, you know, it's probably just sparkling wine that we had. It can't be legally called champagne unless it comes from the Champagne region of France. That's true. Right. Um, and champagne that comes from the Champagne that's region of France. That's a champagne you're drinking. That's right. It has to be called Brut or Prosecco or something else, and it's because of of the grapes and where it's from. France has a lot of regulations for that kind of stuff. That said, the the flavor difference is negligible, as is the impact on your brain the next day, especially if you... It's like drinking a lot of Sprite when you're drinking it. It, it, the, The bubbles make it so that it is very easy to consume in humongous quantities. And then before you realize it, you're like... This champagne glass was based on Marie Antoinette's booby. And then you fall asleep. 
in a puddle of your own filth and wake up the next day like someone has driven a railroad spike through your eye socket. This sounds like it may be a true story, Jeff. (laughs) It may very well be. (laughs) We deal in the truth here at Twibley. That's what the T stands for, right? And then real quick, explain to people who have never been to England what Baby Sham is. (laughs) Baby Sham are little tiny four-ounce bottles of champagne that also (laughs) will get you if you have to drink a lot of them. But uh, they will get you wasted, too. It's like what we call nip bottles over here, but it's champagne. Nah, they're bigger than that. They're It's the equivalent of like one glass of champagne or like a champagne cocktail, but it's in a single serving bottle. Oh. Baby sham. So baby champagne bottle. That's what it means. And it's usually oh. not the best quality of champagne that's in them. So. Are they from the grapes from that area of France? Yes. I don't think they could call them that. They'd have to call them baby pros or some All right. Moving on. Oh, boy. Ready? Tread lightly, fellas. <laughs> August the 5th, 1993, the FMLA, or the Family and Medical Leave Act, goes into effect. This wow. law provides workers with up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave for certain family medical emergencies. Yes. And if you think it's the least you can do... <laughs> You're right! It's the least we can do. Um, (laughs) Yes, the FMLA is the closest we come to rational uh, illness leave policy here in the United States of America, Um, but at least it's that. Before 1993, we didn't even have that. It was like doggy dog. It was like the the end of the world at the the beginning of the Terminator movies. It was Mad Max 2. That's what it was. It was the Road Warrior, and then FMLA... Made it like Mad Max 3. Now, just think about this insanity. It's like like my family. I'm just picturing, like, because I was Caesarean born. That means, you know, my birth was scheduled. So it's like my mom's in the hospital giving birth to me, and my father couldn't get that day off because it wasn't, you know, you know <laughs> yeah. it was I was born on a Wednesday. So, uh, right. yeah, sorry, I, I couldn't get off from work that day. Yeah. I'll see Bill on Saturday when I get home. after i pick you up at the hospital it's tough i mean it's hard not to talk about the the family medical leave act without getting into a discussion of politics and other countries and other things and i don't want to do that um i don't think that that's a productive use of twibley's time it certainly is not a productive use of our time but as society evolves the way that we take care of each other as people and the programs that we put in place to try and improve the lives of the vast majority that tends to be the way that history bends so for all the shortcomings that the fmla has it's a first step towards what for maybe for my kids and or if i ever have grandkids will be something considerably more robust right i mean here it is it's going it's going on 30 years and i'm quite sure there was a lot of like pushback to before it went through but now we can't pitch a life without it. And matter of fact, we're looking to improve upon it. Right. So like you said, first steps are important. First steps are important. And again, we don't generally talk politics here on Twibley. And I don't want to start a, a trend where we do. But nope, there are nope. the good aspects of it. Plenty of podcasts for that. You don't need us. Yeah, you don't need us. We're, we're way more happy to talk about a three-legged Mongolian woman who gives birth to a basketball-playing kangaroo. That's more. That's way more our speed. Or we're more than happy to talk about what happened the next day because <laughs> this is one of my favorite pastimes. August 6th, 2015, the world's largest ever pinball tournament uh, takes place in, it's called Pinburg. It takes place in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it features 700 machines in the tournament simultaneously. 700 I, machines is a ton of pinball machines. Yeah, that's probably all the ones that are left that are working properly, if you think about it. Yeah. I love pinball machines. It, it, they're so hard to find now. We went up to Fun Spot a few years ago, and I've been meaning to get back over there, and they have a wall just full of Pinball machines, as modern as you can get, and some really old clunker ones, too. And I love them all. I love the old ding, 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 ding ones, and all the modern ones with all the bells and whistles and ramps and stuff. I, too, am a fan of the tilted table, and I'm terrible at it. I am not good at it. I am not a good pinball player. I am a quarter feeder, way more than I'm a button flicker. But I, I always enjoy the time that I get to play, and... You will watch if you if we go to a place that has a pinball machine and I start to play and one of the machines has like a defective button. I get super duper irritated um, yeah. and feel like I've been like let down by the universe in, in, as a whole. 
So uh, yeah. I really get a lot of enjoyment from playing a good pinball machine and a lot of anger from playing one that's broken. Uh, do you have a favorite table? I used to love high speed. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, that was that one's a favorite. That was the first like really wide table that I played. Mm-hmm. And I like the Superman, not the the one from the like the fifties, but the Superman from like around the Christopher Reeve Superman nineteen seventy nine, which was yeah. another big wide table. But there's a lot of space between the elements of the table, so it's that's a fun, fast, fast one to play. You say fast, it means it takes my money that fast. Yeah. It takes my money in no time, and like I'm down a buck before I even get to the second ball. Um, <laughs> so my friend Clayton, a very influential person in my life, uh, he turned me on to pinball machines, and he also was the one that got me into cycling. You know, PlayStation Three and Four, I guess. Uh, they are, they have um, a pinball emulation uh, game that you can download, and they have real tables that you can da- you can you can add. And High Speed was one of them. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. And Clayton passed away from cancer a couple of years ago, but I think the last time he came by my house, I had showed him the emulation, and we played High Speed together at my house in my theater room, you know, with the big yeah, yeah. huge projection screen. Nice. And just me and Clayton as, you know, adults playing this thing. It was it was great to see the smile on his face. That's one of those uh, those memories you hold on to. That's yeah, definitely yeah. one of them. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Okay, so moving on to August the 7th, 1992. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, announces that it will swap your old gas-powered lawnmower for a new cordless electric mower which had a value of $400. So this is 1992 technology yeah. we're talking about. So, okay, I haven't seen a picture of this, but I'm going to guess it has like 17 car batteries on top of it to make it run. Oh, no, yeah, the, the battery on the thing must have been like the entire thing, right? right? It's so big, it can, it's self-propelled, and you have to pull it with a car, right? Yeah. <laughs> a gas-powered car, right? Gas-powered car. You have to pull it around with your with your tractor. Mower. Right, yeah. tractor. I'm going to guess that it took like... 18 hours or something to, to bring it to full charge. And then you can mow it for like five minutes, And then you can right? mow for like, yeah, my five or 10 minutes. And it's now, I have an electric lawnmower. We're almost done. We got probably another month and a half of that I have to mow the lawn. And so far, so good. I have made a ethical promise to myself, I guess. I have an electric lawnmower. Now, I have a really big yard, and it's too big for the the lawnmower to do the whole thing. So the deal I made with myself is I have a power bank, a pretty good sized power bank with a solar panel on it. it. Okay. And I charge my electric lawnmower only with that power bank. So I have been able to mow my lawn, the front lawn and part of the side lawn, Mm -hmm. uh, but I only mow it with the electric mower and I only recharged it with the solar bank. So my grass has been completely solar powered, so to speak. Oh, I have to do the backyard with the uh, ride on because it's too big. But the front lawn has been completely green energy mode. Oh, well, that's that's awesome. Yeah. I have and a gas powered lawn. I look like a crazy person because <laughs> I don't know if you've ever used an electric lawnmower, but they're almost silent. I have literally talked on the phone while I'm mowing the lawn because they don't make any noise at all. It's just it's like a, a quiet hair dryer. We had a plug-in, so, a plug-in one when I was a kid, but that was—it's not quite the same. That one was noisy. It did—it did sound like a very angry hair dryer or a partially broken vacuum cleaner. No, this thing's quiet as hell to the point where I live on a busy street, right? So I get these people like getting their exercise in, walking up and down the street all the time, and when they walk by me, it looks like for all the world that I am walking back and forth, not mowing my lawn. <laughs> like you're out there with a toy, like a little kid's toy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I want to hook up like a bubble machine to it just so the people. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Get them neighbors talking like my backyard people there that think I'm a circus clown. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a great idea. All right, moving on to celebrity birthdays. What do you got? I'll start this week on August 1st, 1933. Uh, actor and comedian Dom DeLuise. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Dom DeLuise, comic actor who definitely size was definitely part of his uh, toolbox of things that made him funny. Mm-hmm. He was also, he had impeccable comic timing and he worked really well with other people. Dean Martin and 
Burt Reynolds and tons of other of actors he worked with and helped them look good. He was that kind of quality comedian. Yeah. He was also the first human in the Muppet movie. <laughs> yes. He was he was in the robot. Yeah. I remember um he was in the film that Anne Bancroft wrote and directed called Fatso. Like in 19, yes. I want to say like 1974 or so, and he played a character that had was it was still a funny movie, mm-hmm. but it had like real pathos, and he really got to show emotions that generally weren't associated with him as an actor. And it's such a good film, totally worth digging out if you can find it. I remember that movie existing. I don't think I've ever seen it. Uh, so moving on to August the second, 1957. If your record store doesn't have any of this guy, then it needs some fixing. It's Mr. Mojo Nixon himself. Ah. Star. Star of our annual Christmas episodes. Yes. One of the weird novelty guys that branched out to into sort of punk rock and country and all kinds of other places and never lost his weird sense of humor and still put out a ton of records with different bands and still tours and stuff. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's like a punk rock country western dude, yeah. There's a show on satellite radio called Outlaw Country, uh-huh. which is a good show. It's his own channel, Mojo Nixon's Outlaw Country. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it's a decent channel, and it's a really good show when he is, when he's hosting. He's a lot of fun to listen to. And- I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, but one of them is... At the aforementioned Rocky Point Park, there was they used to do concerts there all the time. And there was one concert that I was trying to get to, and I couldn't get to it. It was Weird Al Yankovic with Mojo Nixon as the opening act. Oh, that must have been awesome. Oh. That would have been awesome. Oh, I kicked myself in the ass for missing that one. I had heard that when I was in England, he played at the Henniker campus in, like, the student union in, like, the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. It was after Bodacious had come out, and I think it was before he put he was touring with the Toad Lickers. As I understand it, he played two songs and was like, screw all of you, and left. Because <laughs> <laughs> people were like eating their lunch and, you know, going through the food line, and he's like, nah, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Moving on to the third. August 3rd, 1950, director John Landis. Probably best known for films like The Twilight Zone and Animal House. And a bunch of, like, 70s weird comedies. Oh, here it is. Here's Jeff McLarger's. Probably best known, and then lists off every movie except for what he's best known for. The it's Blues a, Brothers, yes. you boob. The, the Blues Brothers, yes. I, for some reason, my brain thinks the Blues Brothers, and because Steven Spielberg cameos in it, my brain immediately thinks that that's a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> and it's he has, like, a two-second cameo. And it's still enough for me to go, like, Spielberg's in there. That must be his film. Yeah. Uh, he also did Spies Like Us. And the absolute number one best werewolf movie of all time, American Werewolf in London. Do you know his trademark? His trademark? No. Every single John Landis movie contains the phrase, see you next Wednesday, somewhere in the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. In uh, Spies Like Us, the I Want You poster with Uncle Sam Mm -hmm. says, see you next Wednesday. The name of the adult film at the in the climax, no pun intended, of American Will of London is called See You Next Wednesday. And even Michael Jackson's Thriller, which John Landis directed. Right, yeah, the, the movie the that film. they're seeing at the drive-in, right? No. While they're watching the movie, the dialogue in the movie says, there's a note. What does it say? Oh. See you next Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Every single one of John Landis' movies contains the phrase, see you next Wednesday, somewhere in the film. Oh, I'll have to look for that next time I watch uh, The Blues Brothers, provided I remember he's the director of it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, In The Blues Brothers, it's on a billboard that the cops are hiding behind. Okay. All right. All right. Moving on to August the 4th, 1961, former president of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama. Oh, hey. President Obama, current resident of Massachusetts. Yes, and I will go on record saying, yeah, because obviously any political figure is going to be polarizing. That's the way this country works. But there is no way anybody can argue the fact that Barack Obama is the funniest president we ever had. That guy had impeccable comedic timing. I don't know, man. Gerald Ford with his physical comedy was (laughs) right up there. He definitely was. Uh, President Obama was a funny dude. Very witty. 
In the spring, he came out with a documentary series called Our Great National Parks, which is available on Netflix. And he flexes his comedic muscles on that uh, very well. Huh. Very funny guy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things like, you know, you're talking about the former president of the United States and now you're talking about how funny he is. It's like, that's right, because that's what this podcast is for. Right. You want to listen to politics, you can go freaking anywhere. You're here to make you laugh. <laughs> yes, I like this, the correspondence dinner sketch with the uh, guy from Key and Peele. I can't remember which one is which because I didn't watch that show very often, but he was like the President Obama anger translator. <laughs> yes, I remember that one. Yeah, it was, that was, that was a good one. So I'm not really a big fan of Zach Galifianakis, but um, he had... Obama on his on his uh, Between Two Ferns show and he said to him what's it like being the last black president of the United States? <laughs> Which is funny, I'll admit that. Yes. And Obama deadpan but still you could tell it was, it was meant to be a joke line. He goes something along the lines he said about the same knowing that I'm probably going to be the last guest on your show ever. <laughs> Uh, moving on to the 5th. August 5th, 1862, world famous, I guess, please don't sell my body to a pop star, Joseph Merrick, known to Londoners as the Elephant Man, and uh-huh. and made a living for himself showing off his body, which uh, was afflicted with elephantitis, where his bones continued to grow and grow and grow, and so did his skin and muscles and other stuff, all his fibrous tissue. But he was surprisingly well-educated. He was very literate. He wrote lovely letters. He maintained friendships with famous people until ultimately he died in his bed by sleeping horizontally. He couldn't sleep horizontally because of his affliction and then did and he didn't wake up. There was a very famous movie directed by David Lynch that came out in uh, 1980. That that was uh, Anthony Hopkins that played. Anthony Hopkins played the doctor that took care of him. It was John Hurt that played Joseph Merrick. John Hurt. Yeah. Okay. That's it. I knew knew Tony Hopkins was in it. Um, And then later on, David Bowie played the Elephant Man in a stage production. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Steve Martin played a spoof of the Element Man stage production in the Elephant Guy sketch on Saturday Night Live, which was him with an elephant nose stuck on his nose. All right, moving on to August the 6th, 1928. A very eccentric man who also made eccentric movies, Andy Warhol, a staple of the New York art scene. And a fan of soup cans. Yes. Andy Warhol was... I don't want to say he was one of the first, but he's probably the first like celebrity artist of that avant-garde kind of style that was popular in the in the sixties. Yeah, he was a pop culture figure and pop artist, which was a. I don't think those things really existed before. Right, but he would do like these really odd things. My father was not impressed with uh, with Andy Warhol because like he would paint identical pictures of Campbell's soup cans with like maybe like a little subtle difference between one painting and the next and there would be like you know several dozen of them or whatever i saw the soup cans on display at the moma he, he did a ton of stuff and, with printing too that contributed to the number of those paintings that there are so he would not screen print them but he would lithograph yes because again art is this weird commodity right and if one person will pay $1,000 for one and you keep making them and people keep paying $1,000 for them, keep printing them. No dummy. One of the weirdest things that he did is this movie called Empire. And I think we've brought this up before where it's just a static shot of the Empire State Building for six hours. No dialogue, no music, no anything, no camera angles. It's just this one static shot. Uh, can you imagine going to see that in like some art theater? Like, okay, we have to change the reel. I, I can imagine it if you were like one of the, the denizens of the factory. Be like, oh, this is lovely. Clapping hands. Yes, lovely. And then like, which one of you brought the drugs? Because <laughs> we're going to get those. up and go to the bathroom. You whisper to your friend, what did I miss? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a, an exhibit that's touring around this summer or has toured around this summer, which is a series of screen tests he did of like Lou Reed and some of the other people who were who were in his orbit. It may be at a museum near you. You'll have to go and look. But it's, it's set to music and then quotes from Warhol. Um, pasted underneath. It's really, really interesting to to see if you get a chance yep. to see it. Very, very interesting, dude. And let's wrap up the birthdays. August seventh, fifteen sixty. 
noted Hungarian countess, potential vampire, and inspiration for millions upon millions of vampire female monster characters, Elizabeth Bathory, renowned for tales of her bathing in virgin blood and torturing people to death. She's actually listed, if you go and hunt her Wikipedia page up, as like countess and ser- serial killer, which is... Interesting to have as a title in 1560. So, wait, and the last name was Bathory? Yes. That's like the Lou Gehrig's disease thing. Yeah. You yes. Know? <laughs> yes. Well, the, the, the fire marshal in my hometown, his name was Arson. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah, just I guess bathing in blood was like one of the strange things that she did. One of. Because <laughs> people who are end up on Wikipedia as Hungarian countess and serial killer don't just have one thing about them that makes them unusual. It's multitude. So it's, she definitely had the, the money and the power to, to be a menace to society, into the society <laughs> over which she, she ruled. So so your relationship is over with the Countess? Yeah, there were a lot of red flags. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, what was, the, what was the thing that tipped you off that she might not be, uh, you know, the, the right date for you? Uh, it was the heads on pikes that led to her bedroom. She kept all her flags in the bathtub, hence... <laughs> Ergo. <laughs> and, you know, for all the horror movie characters that she has inspired, and you can argue that, like, some of the f- like the female vampire characters that have come around post-Bram Stoker are sometimes based on her. And I know that her story has been captured in dozens upon dozens of death metal records. None of them that I can remember being the... Worst song ever. All right, Jeff, for the worst song ever this week... It's one song in particular, but we're going to talk about the band, question mark. Okay. Uh, on the whole, uh, because right. there's there's some serious parallel lines between uh, this and my normal self. Very interesting story. Uh, the song we're talking about this week is by Green Jello, and the song is The Three Little Pigs. Oh, I remember this song. Yeah. Uh, this was... Uh, an interesting bit of novelty music. Uh, why don't we just get the clip out of the way, right out of the box, and then we can... Because this is a long story. Uh, well, okay. not a long story, but a, an interesting one at that. Anyway. Does it involve little pigs? <sighs> one or two. Maybe three. <laughs> Good to know. Mostly made up of old cans and sticks. Then one day he was cranking up a Marley. Along came the wolf on his big bad Harley. Okay, so clearly, clearly, this is not a good song. This is not a well-written song. This song is, in short, crap. Yes. (laughs) Now, I have an interesting kind of like take on this band. I was dating this girl, and we were up at the Galleria Mall, which is like the fancy mall that was a little bit out of town. Right. And we were in the record store, and there was a videotape by a band called Green Jello. And it was a videotape and it had a cassette single with it of right. this Three Little Pigs. I had never heard of Green Jello. This was before they broke. This is before they were on MTV. I just thought the videotape looked interesting. They were marketed as the first video only band. They weren't gonna have albums. They mm-hmm. were just gonna have this. And I thought it looked interesting. I bought it and I brought it home. And on the way home, we're listening to the cassette single of this Three Little Pigs song. And, I mean, I thought it was funny, you know, because you didn't really hear stuff like this. Yeah. Heavy metal metal novelty music. And then we got home and we watched the video uh, cassette. And it was just very, very weird. Mm -hmm. They were a group of people. But there really was only one person in the band that was the main guy in the band, a guy by the name of Bill Manspeaker. Right. Yep. Uh, so he's the guy that's singing on that song. Okay. But like, like so many people, so many people came and went out of that band that you can't even keep track of them all. There's not even a page that, that says how many people were in there. Right. But like that Three Little Pigs song that we just hear the, the, with the... You know, all that? Yes. The people doing those vocals include Maynard from Tool, 
and Pauly Shore. Then, th- well, there you go. I don't have much to <laughs> add to that. I always remember disliking the song because it felt like it was po- it was really poking fun. Again, I like fun music, and looking at this now, I'm I'm older and wiser, and I can see some of the charms that it has, and how silly it is, and how satire works, and all the stuff that I didn't really have when this was new. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I remember thinking, like, why why is this on MTV and like DRI isn't? Why is this on MTV and Corrosion of Conformity isn't? Because musically, they're very similar. Lyrically, they're not because this one's mm-hmm. ridiculous. And this is the stuff that people gravitated to, like this easily accessible, really kind of dumb, silly music, driving them away from stuff that I thought at the time was really innovative and interesting. I don't feel that way anymore. I think DRI now is ridiculous when I listen to them, but... I had never listened to DRI. I, I, all my friends all had the, sh- the, you know, the shirt with the guy skanking or whatever the hell. I never really listened to DRI and then, you know, whenever I got my Spotify premium account and I could listen to the world, I was like, I'm going to listen to DRI and see what they're like. And I don't feel like I missed out on all that yeah, much. No, nah, you didn't. Truth. You didn't. But at the, at the time, though, I was I was I loved them. I thought they were yeah. fantastic and really interesting. And to see that this kind of thing was really popular really bothered me because I knew it was going to impact the ability for like real stripped down, really heavy, heavy metal, but not like Maiden, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest metal, to make a foothold. Right. And in the scenes that we were in when, when this song was popular, right, all the local bands wanted to either be death metal or like this. And we can never get them to, yeah. to bridge to the other to make it more important or have something more to say. I was in a band at this time or around the same time called Too Many Gens. I think that's why, because I, I, I liked Green Jello, but I liked them in the same way that people like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I don't think a lot of people understood because Green Jello for a hot second was very popular. Yes. You know? And then that second was over. Gonzo, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't like I'm not sure how many people really understood that they were a joke. You know? There are so many songs on this album that like there's a song on there called Rock and Roll Pumpkin that's like three minutes long. It's one riff through the whole thing. And then that's like the whole song. And then there's a guitar solo. And then it goes back to Rock and Roll Pumpkin. Say it again. I What happened was they got signed. And I think we all know somebody like this. Where like my friend Ryan went into a bank one time and bullshitted his way into like not just a teller job, like a manager job right. with no experience, no anything. He just bullshit his way and he worked there for a couple of weeks before they figured out he was full of and fired him (laughs) but he did it you know and that's what happened with green jello they kind of just like bullshitted their way into saying that they were a band but they weren't it was just this guy bill manspeaker with like some of his friends that would help out that would record these uh these songs but when it came down to it like eventually you know maynard went on to being Tool, which was a very popular band, and some other people... In a perfect circle. Yeah. And some other people went on to do, like, video production and stuff like that, and, you know, just got, like, real jobs and stuff. And Bill Manspeaker is still at it. You can still go see Green Jello. They tour every once in a while, but it's only yeah. him. He's like Chuck Berry, where he like calls ahead and gets some people to like learn the, the eight or nine songs right. that they have, and then they do a show with all the puppet heads and stuff like that. But it's just him. There is no Green Jello. It's just Bill Manspeaker. Yeah. Right. Look, I, I got a lot of respect for that kind of goofy like that goofy art and a, a guy who sort of submerges himself into the ridiculousness of his act. I, I got nothing but love for that. So even though I aboard this song when it was popular 
or when it was new. I have a lot of sort of weird respect for it now, just by virtue of that. Like the impact that Green Jello had helped to open the door a little bit for Guar. It helped open the door a little bit for other stuff that came later that's just as, not just as weird, but plays on the satire side and got traction. So for that, you know, they they should get a debt of gratitude, even if the song still makes yeah, my spine. They were actually friends lot. with Guar and Guar taught them how to make like their puppets with the foam and the glue and the stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, so Apple doesn't fall far no, from the tree. No. no, it doesn't. And like I said, there's this like lovely parallel line where, you know, Bill Manspeaker had all these kind of like great ideas, but he had no real talent. So we relied on these other people right. to do it, which is why I think I gravitated towards them because that's kind of like the story of my band, Too Many Gents. I have no real talent, but I got some cool ideas. I just need people to help me. <laughs> so, right. So it, this is like what would happen. Now, hear me out. It's a parallel yep. earth, Bill. It's 1957. All of the crickets get onto the plane, but let Buddy Holly ride on the bus. Crickets go down and they all get mm-hmm. squished. Buddy Holly emerges and survives and then spends the rest of his life finding traveling musicians to play continuous loops of his songs. See? I can see yeah, how that would work. be a fantastic story if Buddy Holly had no talent whatsoever. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up the show, I do have my very popular and always well-received no. trivia question. Oh, yeah. I oh, you asked, forgot about this. Yep. What was the first... Who was, I should say, the first child actor to get paid $1 million or over $1 million for a role? And what was the movie? And the reason why I'm asking what is the movie is because I think you're going to get the actor right. But I I got to win. I have to have the curveball here. So <laughs> all right, who's all right, the actor right. and what's the role? All right. I'm going to guess National Velvet is the movie and the actor is Mickey Rooney. Wow. No. Way off. What, really? Yeah. The first child actor to get paid more than $1 million for a role was Macaulay Culkin. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Wow, okay. So I guess the studio system really was terrible. Macaulay Culkin, huh? Yep. Here's the curveball. Ready? The movie was? Richie Rich. My Girl. Yeah. Not not as big as a bomb as Richie Rich, but <laughs> a bomb nonetheless. Yeah, uh, yeah. My I think my girl holds up a little bit better than some of his other stuff, and and I I love seeing him now on yeah. YouTube shows. He's funny as all get out. That guy. Oh yeah, guy's got it made. He definitely does. All right, but that is gonna be the end of the show. Bye guys. <laughs> we'll see you back here in seven days. Say good night, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye everybody. Bye guys. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called SPAC Group. That's group with two O's and two P's. by looking for Twibbly. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you can guess where and how many times Bill had to edit out the phrase, well, there you go, from Jeff's audio track before publication.